if you were wanting like a really sort of easy introduction to a Gripen and Solomonic magic, mm -hmm. Magus is a good place to start. Speak the charm of make charm of make charm. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnamancy Podcast featuring Reverend Eric. Join me on an exploration of the practice, philosophy, and history of the occult, esotericism, and the paranormal. My guest today is Mr. R.A. Priddle. He's a special collection librarian and a historian of magic, religion, and science. He earned his Master's of Arts in Religious Studies from the University of Ottawa and his Master's of Information from the University of Toronto concurrently in 2013. Robert has traveled Europe and North America studying and speaking about magic and is delighted to continue to share his experience and expertise in the ubiquitous but little understood technology of magic. And today we're going to be talking about everybody's favorite early 19th century English magician, Francis Barrett. Robert, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And, you know, let me just say this is the first podcast I've ever been on. Period. Oh, well, um, yeah. I wish that we had some sort of like podcast initiation ceremony to do for you some sort of like conf audio auditory confetti or something yeah auditory confetti or like a or like a snipe hunt you know that sort of thing where we tell you that there's some <laughs> task you have to do that isn't real well you know well we're talking about francis barrett so there's a you know we can talk about tasks that uh, that maybe never get finished <laughs> we can do that or where i can tell you that maybe it's really important for us to balance your left and right vocal cords i stumbled across you uh via some Reddit comment that you made about Francis Barrett. And uh, then you sort of directed me to your thesis from your one of your master's degrees. And your thesis is called More Cunning Than Folk, an analysis of Francis Barrett's The Magus as indicative of a transitional period of English magic. For those of uh, the people in the audience who aren't really familiar with The Magus, if there are any, um, can you kind of like give us the 30,000 foot view of what this book is? Okay, so uh, the Magus is uh, when I first tell people like what it is that I that my thesis is about. It's a textbook of occult philosophy, and it's probably I think it's the first textbook that is like a curriculum for people to study magic and learn about uh, the Western esoteric traditions insofar as 19th century society knew and was aware of. So that's that's sort of where what the book is, and then. Uh, how it was treated and where it came from, then uh, that's a story unto itself on like on how that that all that all arrived. And it was published in 1801, right? So it's yes, like, it was. And this is sort of a period of time. Like if you sort of laid out a timeline of of uh, important magical books during the 20th century, it's kind of like the only one there. Like there's nothing else published around that that really had a huge impact. Um, so. Uh, so so it ended up being kind of maybe more significant just because it happened in like an occult desert yeah uh ronald hutton had once had had called this period uh between let's say 1610 1620 and like 1890 as sort of like an abeyance of magic like everything was sort of in decline like keith thomas has uh, you know in his religion and decline of magic like th this was sort of the, the 18th century the late 18th century early 19th century the argument generally was that this period was devoid of magical practice and that sort of like was part of the reason why i wanted to study this particular textbook because um I, it, when it comes to the study of magic everything is either early modern you can find tons and tons of monographs on uh, uh cunning folk early uh early witch hunts all that stuff and then you can find lots of stuff uh you know Aleister crowley austin osmond spare a.e wait huge amounts of literature but then when you get to <laughs> uh, the late 18th century, early 19th century, it seems that there's a hole that no one really, like no one really wanted to talk about, except for I think uh, Jocelyn Godwin in his book uh, *The Theosophical Enlightenment*, mm -hmm. and he, but it, his is a very sort of um, 
uh, broad view of Europe in general during this time period. And since my work was just a master's thesis, you can't you you can't be too expansive. So I had to be very very specific and 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 targeted. And I'm not supposed to advance. Uh, new knowledge too much. A master's thesis is is to show that you have a mastery of a particular area of study, and so I only I didn't want to push too hard on like what I think Francis Barrett's Magus is and does, even though I do a little bit at the end. But yeah, so that's that's sort of why I, I found the this period sort of interesting because you had you had your Agrippas and your John Dees and 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 your Edward Kellys and all these great sort of. Uh, uh, magical figures in history, and then it's just sort of like evaporates a little bit, but it doesn't really evaporate. It just becomes less less socially convenient, and it gets um it gets weird and like pseudo scientific uh, in the 18th century. Also, you get like mesmerism and animal magnetism and like. Well, uh, and I think that's the interesting part of it, like uh, because I uh, my general thesis in almost all the work that I do is I think magic is the most important technology we've ever invented as a human, as, 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 a, as a civilization. It, it enables us to create uh, our ideas into reality. It's, it's like our part of our imaginative process. And so when uh, the, in the 18th century, when they were really starting to break down uh, the elemental system, they, they realized air wasn't just a thing, it was made up of lots of other things. It mm -hmm. sort of started changing the way we interacted with the scientific world, but it didn't change us who we are fundamentally as people and that we love magic to make uh, or stories in general to, to make sense of our world. So, well, we, we just, that's that's why I think. Uh, uh, I, I'm I'm still hold yeah. on. I'm still just sort of wrapped up. That, like <laughs> that was a strong statement that you led with there, where you were like magic yeah, is. Yeah. The, um, and I mean, I guess I'm kind of in agreement with you, but it's it's hard to frame it in in terms of like magic or calling it magic. Uh, I guess I would want to call it more like um, the imaginal or or manipulation of the imaginal it's it, yeah it's sort but of i think a... you know i think I, I see religion sort of like as a technology as well like okay. i don't i don't see religion as as an actual uh useful term it's all it's 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 either truth or, or it's meaning right so truth and the only way we know truth is is physics that's science and then everything else is meaning making and what's the seed of meaning well i think the seed of meaning comes from magic and that's sort of like this this sort of empty spark that we that crosses all human boundaries that we can we can it's it's not a great term it's mm -hmm. probably a better term but i like using magic as sort of like this this great empty box in which we can just start talking about uh societal context out from what what that particular culture says ma what magic is and that's sort of where this this uh this this book history thing comes from because uh uh if you um by studying uh, the form and manufacture of a book, you can, so if the medium is the message and the content is the audience, then the audience will give you indication of your society. I love that. That that that, that makes really good sense to me. Uh, I almost kind of want to like stop and just change the topic of the podcast now. <laughs> no, like let's 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 see where this conversation goes because that's, okay, uh, okay. that's that's what I love about it. So well, I but I okay. So let's let's rewind a little bit. Uh, let okay. or no, let's fast forward a little bit to uh, Francis Barrett, the human being. Like okay, who was this guy? Where did he come from? What was he doing? How did he end up um, being in this pivotal position? Okay, so well, uh, the only biography ever written about Francis Barrett was written by a man named Francis X. King, uh, I think in, I want to say the 80s or the 90s, the 1980s or the 1990s. I can't remember, the, I had to look at the monograph. Okay. It's called The Flying Sorcerer. Yeah, I've heard of uh, Francis King before, but maybe... Yeah, yeah. He, was, okay. he was one of those names like Montag, Summers, and, and um, uh, Manly P. Hall, though mm -hmm. th that generation... Or, or, or to a lesser extent, maybe even um, T.J.S. Thompson. I don't know. He was a yeah. he was a medical historian, uh, the, the the art and and uh, romance of apothecary or something like that. Uh, and they, they they were the type of historians that they love to tell a good story, but they never cited anything. So like they would they would just say, oh, I saw so and so and this and that, and you're like, well, 
that doesn't really cut it in the modern world. I'm going to need, I need archive numbers. I need footnotes. I need, I need to know where you're getting this information from. So part of my work was I, I, I combed through what Francis King said about Francis Barrett. And insofar as we can tell, he was born to uh, uh, a Francis Barrett and an Anne Jones in around 1770, possibly. Uh, so Francis Barrett was around 30-ish, I guess, when he published his book. And then uh, we have, there, from best we can tell, he probably studied uh, uh, apothecary, uh, sorry, uh, an apothecary trade with um, a man named Ebenezer Sibley, who was uh, sort of a, a very affluent uh, uh, Swedborgian and uh, astrologer who lived in Marylebone right around the corner. And he was, he, he was also famous for doing um, a translation of Culpepper's Herbal. Right. So, yeah, and it, it went into many, many reprints. So in terms of like... Uh, magic being published at the time Ebenezer Sibley was sort of doing it but nothing it was all just stuff that was already like common in in people's sort of day-to-day lives astrological ephemeris uh, herbal remedies and and these kinds of things uh, yeah. but so I think we also think yeah, yeah. He, so anybody who's listening who's like a who's into sort of like the history of astrology probably knows Sibley's name right like he was he, he did the he did the chart for the birth of the United States. That's right. Okay, I knew I had come yeah. across him recently. Uh, yeah. Actually, my yeah, I've got a buddy locally who's an astrologer who um, who's talked a lot about that. Okay, so I've I knew that Sibley's name was really familiar to me, but I was kind of like, I mean, I know about Culpepper's, but I didn't. I wasn't associating Sibley with that. Okay, cool. So so the birth. He, yeah. Chart so he probably United got States. trained. He got trained in some of like uh, sort of uh, you know apothecary techniques probably because uh, there's no there's no record of a Francis Barrett being part of the worshipful society of apothecaries. I l- went and did the legwork there, and um, but he must he must have had some sort of sort of background in that. I would imagine uh, Francis King said he uh, he was probably a dock worker. I'm like oh well. That's that's a far stretch to me. I don't know where you support that. It seems it's this this seems more likely, and it's just and that's what history is. Uh, it's, it's a lot of interpretive best guesses, mm-hmm. and you can't you never you never really get the truth, but you get a you get a story that sounds true. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, history. I mean, it literally yeah. just means a story. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so then, uh, so in, in your. In your thesis, you were talking about how, like, one of the earliest um, pieces of evidence that we have of Barrett being involved in occult stuff or magic stuff is he attempted a, a translation of uh, von Welling's Opus Mago Kabbalisticum et Theosophicum. Yes. <laughs> or however you um, say that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I had to uh, 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 go to the Beinecke in Ye- uh, uh, at Yale University in order to see this copy. And... Um, because like I wanted to know what what he was translating, what the information was, and uh, so this this was his first. I think this was his interest in chemistry, his interest in and in, in chemistry at this time. I don't think was still fully divorced yet from its sort of its from its spiritual understandings, and alchemy was undergoing that spiritual sort of transformation uh, rather than uh, you know uh, physical uh, alchemy of like. Uh, turning copper into silver or making a diana's tree like any any of this, this sort of like actual chemical preparations done in alchemy uh was now becoming part of the domain of actual chemistry and and alchemy was sort of uh uh was refining itself into being more of a an internal sort of meditative thing and, and that and that comes up in uh in francis barrett's actual uh text itself when he talks about uh, alchemy uh, the list of things that an alchemist should be are more about, uh, you know, uh, moral virtues rather than, you know, um, you know, wearing rubber gloves when handling sulfuric acid or, or these kinds of things, you know. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess I was sort of thinking of the context then, like there's a lot of scientific innovation going on around that time. Um, you Not know, quite. probably in... Uh, it was in the 1770s, early 1770s, I think, when uh, Benjamin Franklin started publishing his stuff. Oh no, it was way—it was before that. 
So what this period is called uh, in the history of technology is called the Industrial Enlightenment. So the Industrial Revolution hasn't quite happened yet. The Enlightenment is already pretty much over. So we have this weird kind of period of the Industrial, uh, we call the Industrial Enlightenment. So Francis Barrett, uh, this the book, The Magus, was printed on paper on wove paper, and yeah, and this is this is where my librarian uh, geeky kind of takes over. So wove paper is machine made paper, and mm-hmm. before and before this time, all paper was handmade by by uh, uh, lifting a molten decal in in a vat of stuff and then drying it out. This paper was made out of wove, and it's very rare at this time because this didn't become common until about 1830 to 1870. So somewhere so somewhere along the way, uh, some in, some technologies were coming into this production of this particular book. Don't know why, but I do know that the, that this paper was machine made paper on a um, Bolton and Watt steam engine foundry. And mm. at this time in 1800, none of that technology had become common or cheap. So, so yeah, that's interesting because it totally puts the magus in this place where it's, um, you know, magic is kind of faded away as a topic of interest. But in order yet, to like produce, huh? And then, then, and then, and yet they're putting yet, in like yeah. money and time into a book. But not only that, but it's also this like science fiction book production. Right, like it's yeah. it's the cutting edge technology that's producing the book, and you can just imagine like this weird ass steam engine, you know, mixing slurry or whatever the you know the pulping stuff and creating. Yeah, because well, this, this is because <laughs> the two printers, because like the first edition had two printers, they're separated across the city, and so uh, and but the paper, I believe that. I couldn't tell you for certain because by the time I learned this technique, I had I was already out of England at the time, so I didn't have a first edition in front of me. I was only, I was working from an 1875 edition, which used a type of paper to make it look like it was handmade paper, mm. which was weird. It, and, and maybe we'll get down to um, to Frederick Hockley and his edition later. But um, so shoot, I lost my train of thought. Uh, the the book was printed by two different printers on different sides That's of England, different sides of London. Um, so you're thinking That's right, that, and they were the ones selecting the paper, right? So like they were oh. like they're they're the ones choosing the paper and then and then doing the printing. So wherever they were buying the paper from right. was from someone doing making this paper. In addition to that, uh, the publisher, uh, the Lacklington Allen and Company, um, they were taking sort of a risk. They were. They were. This was like their new publishing sort of, sort of, uh, sort of um, uh, uh, foray into the world. Because mm-hmm. Lacklington Allen and Company was famous for changing the way people bought books. What he, what, what, uh, what James Lacklington did was he would go around and buy up uh, books that weren't being sold and then sell them cheaper. Because before that, in order, if you if you wanted to buy books, you had had to have references, you had to have credit, you had to know someone. Like it was a very closed system. James Lacklington believed that people should, people should have books in their hands. So he was he 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 basically created the idea of of used book sales. And then because he was so in, in, innovative in that respect, they were able to expand and start publishing. And because of publishing the Magus, it, it even then enabled. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Mary Shelley to have a publisher of Frankenstein. Oh man, yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's just so fascinating. I, um, you know, I, I reread Frankenstein uh, just like a couple years ago, and it had been since probably college or high school. I don't remember the first time I read it. I, I, they teach it. Uh, I'm a high school librarian right now, but and so they they teach it in grade ten here <laughs> in in Canada. Yeah, which means that we probably never get to it. I probably read it. In <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, but uh, but I was just sort of so fascinated. Uh, you know, the, it's very early on in the intro when uh, Victor Frankenstein is sort of like describing his occult studies, and he's got this great list of of you know Renaissance occult books and alchemists and all the sorts of stuff and paracelsus and things. And I'm just like, oh, this is yeah. cool. How come I never got this before? Um, but uh, it's just so fascinating to think that, like this, you know, the the magus um, being sold or even being available at all would somehow be involved in the ability for Frankenstein to be published, which is also referencing all of these older books that you know nobody 
nobody uh, of average means or education would have any access to. That's right. And, and it's sort of like uh, what we call in the history of technology as like uh, information feedback loops. So like every time, like no, all knowledge is useful somehow, even if it's not useful knowledge, which is a different thing altogether. But uh, mm -hmm. so, so, so even, even all failure is, is still good, is still data. Like it's still, like you can still learn something from failure. Mm -hmm. So, so any, and it's the same with, with uh, small, even small success can be incremental to ideas hundred years down the road that you never even thought that it, it would be a consequence of. Right, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so then, and that was 1801 when he finally yeah. got around to this. So he was in his 30s. Uh, do we know what he was doing for a living at the time? Uh, no. You know what? Uh, we do have some indication. So after after 1801, he then traveled around southeast England until about 1803, mm. and he was doing uh, these ballooning attempts around uh, around uh, uh, Cornwall and Wales and and all this area. And uh, what makes what makes his ballooning attempts sort of interesting was they were they were done with hydrogen. They were hydrogen balloons. Like almost all the ballooning attempts during this time period, because they were big. They were big rock star events. Like huge, huge tens of thousands of people would go to see a balloon launch. But they were all done with hot air at mm -hmm. the time. How Francis Barrett got into his head to uh, take sulfuric acid, lead uh, pieces of lead, and then manufacture hydrogen gas in sufficient amounts to to attempt balloon launches is it's just craziness like it's it's so it's so reckless too so was he doing it he was manufacturing this stuff yeah yeah okay so that's he was, like he was getting he was getting the 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 um... Uh, the acid from a chemist mm -hmm. like because like, you like because like it was all done by subscription model so everyone who wanted to go to the balloon event would pay their their ducats or whatever it was and uh and then that would furnish then uh the the materials uh except for the balloon which francis Barron apparently owned and at one point he was so distraught about his his ballooning attempts he he uh he uh, mentioned that he he wanted to like turn them into a bumper shoots umbrellas, like uh, find a way of coating them with a with a waterproof coat that, that these pieces of silk that he had, and then and making and just selling umbrellas at, uh, by the sea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but how how would he have learned the trick of making hydrogen gas? Like it's it's fascinating that he went from you know maybe ten years before working on. Uh, this famous alchemical manuscript and then we find him doing like chemistry that would have been fairly up to date like it would have been modern chemistry like this is how you make this is how you produce hydrogen gas how, yeah how i'm not sure it, like on how much of like the like how much chemistry he knew was working in there but i do think though that his working with ebenezer sibley because ebenezer sibley was also making like um uh, planetary elixirs, I think he called them, mm -hmm. something like that. So, like, I'm, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure they were they were working with different sorts of, 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 of materials and substances, uh, and he was and he was learning about that. And because in the history of alchemy, hydrogen gas is kind of is kind of interesting because alchemists did learn that they could make a blue a blue flame lamp by putting bits of metal into acid and then and then lighting fire to the what was ever being given off so it, it gave this sort, sort of you know magical sort of associations of of wizards being with blue flames mm -hmm. so like there's all that history and then uh, there's also a famous uh famous story of uh, creating phosphor in alchemy oh yeah yeah like yeah so like urine. you know uh, yeah boiling urine and then and honestly think about it at the time right if you are you you don't you don't have a, a real good grasp of the periodic tables or things like that yet but you but you do know that there are secrets locked within nature, and they're producing things you don't understand yet. So, uh, I, you know, it's, it's at this still point where like magic and and science are still like trying to figure out where their where their their markers are yet. I imagine, you know, maybe even going through Francis Barrett's head was like, this is proof that alchemy is real, or this is, you know, I am an alchemist now. I've turned alchemy into flight, you know, like he must yeah, have... Yeah, I've turned alchemy into flight. Yeah, yeah, he must have had this feeling of like, 
being on the verge of some sort of alchemical breakthrough. Yeah. And then just being frustrated over and over and over again. Did he, so he did get off the ground eventually though, didn't he? Uh, so the way that uh, his attempts were described, they were, because like they weren't as successful as hot air balloons, right? Hot air balloons were, are, are fairly easy and reliable to produce and they, can, and they can go up really, really high and you can fly really, really far. We still mostly use hot air balloons today. The hydrogen balloon though, um, he did manage to, you have to generate a lot of it in order to create lift to haul up your mass. He did manage to put up a cradle, I think, with a cat in it and a and a bottle of champagne and some bread, and it flew for you know it flew it it got off the ground, but there was no passenger in it. So because there was no passenger in it, it they didn't consider it a success. Mm. I don't I don't necessarily consider it that way. I'm like, wow, he he launched a balloon and and it f- flew into a field and farmers cut it up. I'm well, sure the cats probably thought it was a success. Yeah, maybe. Uh, and, 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 you know, just think about like the first flight of the, of the Wright brothers. They didn't go very far or very high. It, ta- it takes, you know, a, a lot of attempts in order to do it. And, and Francis Barrett was a no one. Uh, hmm. The Napoleonic Wars hadn't started yet. He got in cozy somehow with the Consul General of Portugal, who is the last ally of, of England before the Napoleonic War. Right, like that was like uh, mm-hmm. one, uh, Napoleon invaded uh, invaded Port- Portugal, and thus started the, the whole series of events apt to, for Napoleon to take over to take over Europe. And I, so I don't know how Francis Barrett like convinced the consul general to use his his estate to have ten thousand people watch him launch a balloon. That's a loose that's a loose thread. I haven't figured that out, but I do know like he he managed to do that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, so so, what became of Francis Barrett? Like he, what, where? After, after, after the Napoleonic Wars, we don't mm-hmm. know. Um, uh, th- there is some sort. There is a rumor that uh, he he might have had a son uh, who became a doctor. Um, there is rumor that he did. He went to the United States because uh, in the pocket. Uh, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, mm-hmm. was a, was the Jupiter with a Jupiter talisman, which uh, does not come from Agrippa's three books of uh, of of occult philosophy. Rather, it comes from the Magus's version of the Jupiter talisman, mm-hmm. because there's a mistake in the in the Hebrew there that get, that gets reprinted. And then Joseph Smith, when he is shot, they find they find that talisman from the Magus in his pocket. Yeah, yeah, I've seen pictures of it and. Yeah, so I know about that, but had the Magus not been printed in the United States yet? Uh, there, okay, so it uh, it gets printed, I believe, uh, in Philadelphia. In uh, I want to say it's I want to say eighteen thirty, but that doesn't sound right to me. I have to look. Uh, I have to go through like the list on uh, uh, on my thesis, which I haven't read in a while. But because um, there's a there's a second edition in eighteen seventy five. Joseph Smith is already dead at this point. Right. Right. So. First edition hat of the Magus in 1801 between uh, and between Joseph Smith's death had to have made its way to the United States somehow to get into Joseph Smith's brain somehow. I don't know because I, yeah, I, I know that I know that Joseph Smith and his and his father they were treasure hunters, which was super super common in in Europe at the time, right? Because right. you could you could dig in your garden and you could find like Roman hordes of gold. Not so common in the United States, however. So, but I, so, but I know that they were very into into that sort of that that sort of cunning folk practice of mm-hmm. of, tr- of treasure finding and and curse lifting. And there was, uh, I mean, I, this is a totally different topic, but there was a, a pretty strong cunning folk tradition um, in the northeastern United States uh, at the beginning of the nineteenth century. That. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, um, sort of uh, uh, the sixth and seventh books of Moses. Uh, uh, the long lost, uh, long friend. lost friend. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you also had like, oh, I mean, you know, all the crazy religious stuff that was happening there. We don't need. We don't. Oh let, yeah, Quakers yeah. and like, and, and this is a, and so this is the thing. Like, where do you draw the line at magic, and where do you draw the line at religion? Well, if you're if you're kind of a historian of the thing, you go, well, you know, let's just talk about people and what they what they uh, what they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'd never like I knew that um, Joseph Smith's uh, 
Jupiter Talisman came out of the Magus, but I guess I never really thought, how did he get a hold of a copy? It hadn't occurred to me that it wasn't really widely available in the United States well, and, at the time. And that goes back to like sort of like on how uh, the, the, the Magus was sort of published. Because uh, the general argument was that Francis Barrett hung around a man named John Denley. And John Denley was an occult book sales person uh, in the in the in, in the area, and eventually Denley bought the plates for the Magus, and then those plates were then passed down to his his accountant, I believe it was uh, Frederick Hockley, and Frederick Hockley then reproduced the Magus in 1875. But when I was doing sort of like well, uh, walking the history of Francis Barrett, as it were, I'm like, okay, Ebenezer Sibley lives just around the corner, uh, and Ebenezer Sibley dies in 1799. His books are then sold to Denley, but it takes time to write a book. You can't like it's not like you know. Let's say let's say all the let's say Ebenezer Sibley dies. Ebenezer Sibley dies in December 1799. Mm -hmm. Magus is published in January 1801. How there's not a lot of time for the books of of Ebenezer Sibley to get to John Denley for Francis Barrett then to read them and publish his work. Yeah. My argument my argument then is well Sibley and and Barrett must have must have had a closer relationship than than history can can demonstrate at the time and and Sibley and Barrett is like is is reading all like uh, 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 Agrippa in 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 its original manuscript forms and all these probably like um, the manuscript tradition of occultism that's not published but like and and but Barrett is getting access to this drawing upon it creating a new text and publishing that. So then let's I guess we should probably get into a little bit about the text of the Magus itself. So you, right. you described it already as um, probably the first book that's sort of laid out as a, uh, like a course, a course book or a... Yeah, like a textbook. Textbook, yeah, sorry. I knew that was a word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, but the Magus gets a bad rap for being sort of a um, plagiarization of Agrippa's Three Books of Occult Philosophy and uh, Dale Bono's Heptameron and that sort of stuff. Um, so, can you explain to us like how how it's laid out? Like, what what did um, what did Barrett do to turn that into a textbook? Well, I think what he um, what he mo so uh, if if you've ever seen the three books of occult philosophy, it's a big book, it's a big text. So. Mostly, so what Francis Barrett did first and foremost was take a lot of that material and just take and just get to the, like the useful practical parts of it, and the stuff that I think would be more more useful for someone just getting into in, into occult studies and like okay, so how do I create you know uh, a, 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 a seal of Jupiter? What are the number association associations and this and that? So. The first thing he did is what he he edited a lot of material down. Um, he also put it together in a way that would stand as individual parts. I have an argument that I wasn't able to prove because I didn't I didn't get to look at a first edition close enough at the time that each of the sections of because each the 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 the, the book is broken down with title pages dispersed throughout the text. Mm -hmm. This tells me that each of those sections could have stood alone as a chapbook or as a smaller little pamphlet rather than that rather than being produced as one whole text. The idea that it became a textbook was probably maybe publisher or printer printer understanding of what the of, of what how the book was going to be printed rather than what Barrett intended. I think Barrett intended to have uh, uh, here's a here's a, a little tract on alchemy. Here's a little tract on how to summon uh, how to uh, put a, a spirit into a crystal. Here's a tract on Kabbalah, as, mm. a, a, that he could sell as an apothecary, as a cunning person, as a balloonist, as an as an entertainer. So that's how I sort of imagine it. But 
the industrial enlightenment had its own designs on the way information was going to be consumed. And and I'm sure these printers were like, nope, we're going to make this as, as a textbook. And because of, well, because of the, the thing was when the book was also printed, uh, it was still at the time period where if you and I went to go buy a book, mm-hmm. we were just buying the sheets and then we'd go to a binder and then have them put and then have it put together in the way that we wanted. Right, right. It wasn't, it wasn't until later that publishers became the binders as well. Like they just did the binding in house and said, this is the way our books are going to look when we put mm. them out. That's kind of fascinating. Like I, I, li- I like this idea of, of Barrett um, intending to almost make like a, a series of, you know, chapbooks or pamphlets or something. Um, yeah, it, that was really common in France, the, the chapbook okay. grimoires. It makes me think of uh, AMORC, you know, the American yes. Rosicrucian Society that sends out their little, you know, monthly chapbooks or month. I mean, they're really small, but um, that's... And, that's par- and that's part of it because in the title page of the Magus, Francis Barrett puts the letters FRC after himself, so Freder Rosicrucs, mm-hmm. right? So he's he's part he I, he imagines himself as part of the Brotherhood of the Rosy Cross, which. I don't know if we. I don't think we can get into that on like that whole that whole myth of the secret order. I'm cool. Trying to. I'm cool. Uh, I don't know that much about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's confusing. It's uh, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. We don't. Yeah. I I don't know enough about uh, what happened in England in with Rosicrucian stuff in that period of time. It's 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 a big tangle. <laughs> yeah. That that. But that 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 this this sort of this mystical order of of people. With secret wisdom that becomes part and parcel though of like european esoteric identity for like a long time mm-hmm. and uh, it, 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 it it's it inspired you know uh, uh the oto and the hermetic order of the golden dawn and all and all these other like you know quasi masonic groups that that keep on that have popped around in the 19th century and i, I still think there's probably some sort of <laughs> some sort of groups like that today. Oh, there are. There are, um, you know, I mean, Amorc is still around. Uh, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn is, you know, splintered into a million different little groups, but that still exists. Uh, but there are also, there is a an FRC, which is a Rosicrucian order, uh, and a couple others. I, I don't really keep track of them. Um, they get a little, they get a little extreme and a little weird. So I kind of... St- you know, I'm not interested in joining a Rosicrucian order, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, there are still some of them around, and uh, from what I can tell, they have you know small but enthusiastic followings. Um, but but in terms of the Magus, so uh, can you tell us like you probably spent a lot of time looking at the content of the Magus, and I'm just wondering uh, what other works did he pull from? So the Heptameron and uh, the occult uh, Agrippa's three books are the most well-known, but like, what else did yeah. he get into? Well, okay. So in this section on, on alchemy, uh, it was like, there was no direct plagiarization that occurred. Like, there's nowhere where I was able to say, oh, he directly read this and, and then copied this and, and printed this. It seemed to be a lot of, uh, it, it seemed to me that he read a lot of alchemical works. And this was just sort of like, his basic understanding of it just as a teaser to so for people to, who want to get into alchemy, they would know the correct moral order. Cause I, I think I labeled this in my thesis, the, the, the uh, deontology or something like that. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the way that one must comport oneself. If, if you are to be a, a magician and an alchemist, you know, uh, uh, abstain from alcohol. It, it, the, the list, the list that he writes in that section, it sounds, it, it sounds a lot like Methodism. Like it's very, it's a, it's a very it's it re, it reads as very like Christian sort of like wholesomeness, and that's and that's that that does definitely comes up an awful lot in Western magic, mm-hmm. trying to you know uh, be on be on God's good side. Uh, but then other sections like um, the art of drawing a spirit into a crystal, mm-hmm. uh, it, it was reported to have uh, written by Johannes Trisimus, uh, though um, it it's. It's one of those pseudo uh, uh, epigraphical sort of sort of understandings. Uh, Trithemus didn't didn't write this text, but it gets attributed to him. And no, we don't, we I don't couldn't find. know for sure that he didn't write it. We're just pretty certain he didn't write it. That's fair. You yeah. know that uh, that's fair because like I I want to read uh, what is it? Um, Black Abbot, White 
Magic? Is that the, the, the book yeah, that just came yeah, out? Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. Actually, I, 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 I just I'm, I'm totally that. interested in reading that. I'm really excited I'm totally about reading that. Um, and I've read some of uh, Trithemius. You know, I've read um, Steganographia, and uh, I've at least looked at Polygraphia. I don't know if there's an English translation of Polygraphia, though, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to try no. Trithemius in Latin. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, so when I was, so there was also, there was one other person though that did sort of work on Francis Barrett. Her name is Alison Butler. And in the Journal for the Study of Magic, in the, uh, she wrote uh, an article called The Importance of Francis Barrett's Magus. And so she, so of course, when I'm doing my thesis work and I read this article, like, oh, this woman has done all my work for me. And it's just this short little article. I have to, I have to figure out a whole new, whole new project well i i just i just sort of went back over her work really really carefully and in in and when she was talking about the composition of the magus and she's right mostly yes it it's large sections of agrippa's three books of occult philosophy yes the heptameron yes all of these other things however when she says this art of drawing a spirit into a crystal she says it's uh i had to go to her thesis for this because and she said the the text is uh, a German work called uh, Gudenlein's Klein Old oder Schatzkastlein, which is golden treasure or the hidden the hidden treasure. And I went and looked for this work, and I and I read it. And let me tell you, uh, reading um, German black letter printing not fun. Mm. But when I read it, I was like, none of the text matches. Like this doesn't this is not the same thing. So I went so I looked at her at her footnote where she got that information, and I went back to the book that she read. And on the and on the line that she cited, she thought that it was a comma. It was a semicolon. So the author was listing books attributed to Johannes Tarthemus, mm. not books written. So like she she just it was a reading mistake, and it gets then tra- transcribed as to the source material for this thing that's found in the Magus. It's not. So now I ha- So now we have this. Uh, this manuscript, uh, presumably that that there had to have been a ma- uh, like uh, a previous work that he didn't invent it, so he drew it from somewhere, and then it gets into the so it's like this is so no matter what people say about Francis Barrett copying Agrippa, I'm like yeah, but he still he still gave to the Western esoteric tradition this piece of magic that is not found in print anywhere else. So and no matter what he did, it's incredibly popular, that. you know, like it's used a lot. It is, it yeah. is at the Frederick center. Frederick Hockley later on mm. becomes like a huge crystal uh, spirit guy uh, in, in like the 1880s and, 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 and that. And, and that, and I, I hear, you know, the art of drawing a spirit into a crystal is fairly popular to this day, I believe. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, it, it's, uh, it's used a lot. It's at the center of, of many um, sort of like modern magical courses and modern magical books, and uh, and there are people, you know, reproducing the um, the tools found in uh, in the Magus and and creating them all over again. So yeah, it's it's very popular. Yeah. So uh, so that's so that's when I when people say he's a plagiarist, I'm like, well, you know what, plagiarism didn't really exist then yet we had copyists because mm-hmm. you still had you know uh, scribal traditions and print traditions so like people were were doing that all the time if you want to talk about the plagiarism of the magus you have to talk about um uh, L, uh delorence lw delorence and he pirated the magus in i think the 1910s the 1920s like 1917 uh and he called it uh the book of hindu magic or something like that and it's basically it's 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 basically the magus but then he puts in some some extra illustrated plates of like um swamis and and basket cobras and all those kinds of things and 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 makes it off to be a book of of sort of like eastern magic it's like no (laughs) yeah but that was that was that was the lawrence for you though he was he loved to just make money do we have a term for that is that reverse cultural appropriation (laughs) Oh, let's. Oh, I have such strong feelings about cultural appropriation. But let's not cultural depropriation. (laughs) Well, he was a thief. (laughs) A thief. He was a thief. Okay, that's interesting. So, so, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess. uh, So, so Barrett was sort of a copyist, but or a compiler, but he was also kind of an annotator and a shortener, right? Like he kind of. 
He's the, an editor, the, yeah. Yeah, Agrippa's work is very verbose and um, you know, especially like in book one of Agrippa, you find a lot of stuff that uh, by the by the beginning of the 19th century, you, they would know to be false. Like there's all sorts of like weird herbalism and medical stuff in and, there that and, they would and know. Lightning was, and where yeah. it comes from and all that kinds of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So there's all that sort of stuff that you don't really need to include because it's just going to, you know, misinform people. Um, so I could see that it, it's useful to, to do that. It's useful to chop that stuff down. Uh, so that's that's sort of cool. So, so in your opinion, do you think Francis Barrett is worth uh, people taking a look at? Like he doesn't deserve the bad reputation he's got. Uh, no, um, I, I think that if you are if you are wanting like a really sort of easy introduction to a Grippin and Solomonic to some extent magic, mm-hmm. the Magus is a good place to start. It will start you off. It will because, like, uh, because as a textbook, it also lists references. And at the end, we, even though we don't know it, if Francis Barrett actually wrote this section, and this might have been actually um, something that one of the printers sort of had lying around, it's a uh, like it's a biography of all the famous sort of magicians and alchemists and and theological people. Mm-hmm. And so it gets so it gives it, so it'll give a reader a, a place to like, oh, you know what? I don't know anything about John D. I can read something about him, and then I can you can start your. It's like Wikipedia. It's not a very good. It's it's not very good, but it's a good place to start. Huh. Well, that sounds pretty fun. I honestly, um, you know, when I when I started learning magic, I learned out of uh, Agrippa. So my teacher was very sort of poo pooey about the Magus. Like, oh, you don't need that book. You've got you've got Agrippa. You'll be fine. <laughs> well, yeah, and it, honestly, if you do have Agrippa, you will be fine. But well, uh, kind of. It's hard to, you know, Agrippa is dense and you it's hard to find a path through that book that's going to teach you something and there's a lot of reading that you have to do to get to the good stuff that is just throwaway knowledge now. Well, yeah, it, it, well as Fowler Hanegraaff had said it's the wastebasket of rejected knowledge is what what we what they referred to as western esotericism like it's it's all the stuff that that, that didn't that didn't make the cut yeah right yeah yeah that's true or uh, uh, elizabeth eisenstein uh who uh, she's a print historian and uh, talking about the the revolution of 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 the printing press in europe and she said um when uh when when technology went to press so too did a whole host of occult uh, occult lore and so uh, when when manuscript was going into into print production, so like Agrippa collecting all the folklore around Europe and then printing it, uh, people like it, it was just like technology and folklore were just being pressed through this print the, 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 this press at the time and and coming out with new outputs and then it's and then it takes a whole generation after that to look at those outputs and going. And just chopping off the parts that don't matter and making it work for that particular context at the time. So, yeah, you could if you want to read Agrippa, that's fine. But it's going to be a, a long time till you get Donald Tyson's edition with huge footnotes explaining to you, you know, who who Hephaestus is or or what or what all the associ- associations are. Because if you just want to read just Agrippa, mm-hmm. you're gonna you might get lost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like it's, it's a lot in there. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of nice to have it and a little, a little condensed, a little. Uh, yeah. Okay. Something, something, to, something to get you started on the path. But uh, you know, I think, I think we're reaching a point in human history where we're going to have to start looking back at uh, at uh, some of the magical systems and maybe reformulating them. And I think it might upset a lot of traditionalists. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think we need to be more heliocentric in our approach rather than uh, sort of. Uh, the, the geocentric models, which seem to to underpin a lot of magical systems from antiquity. Yeah, that's a that's going to be a tough transition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so then, uh, okay, I have one more. I have one more uh, question about the Magus. Um, so okay. we we already discussed sort of like the mystery of the origins of uh, drawing spirits into crystals, but are there any other sort of mysteries that came out of your exploration of the Magus that, um, that uh, you just weren't able to make any progress on? Like what, what, what are some outstanding questions that you still have about this work? 
So, um, more, you know what? Uh, so, this this thing for me was uh, basically about tying up a lot of loose ends in what I saw uh, in the history of magic in the late 18th and early 19th century. So, I, by and large, I managed to tie up a lot of uh, a lot of loose ends. The things that I don't know include the relationship of Francis Barrett to the Consul General of Portugal at the time. Where Francis Barrett died, I have no idea. And where Francis Barrett got that text for the art of drawing a spirit into a crystal. I don't know where those come from. I only have guesses. And But what I do, but what I do know, or what I, I, I think I know, is that Francis Barrett created a seed of imagination that would live well beyond him. For example, the Wizard of Oz. He is quite, the Wizard of Oz is quite liter, literally a fraudulent ballooning magician, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying that, 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 that there's a, a direct causation here, but there is sort of an imaginative sort of field that was created, I believe, with Francis Barrett. And, That's, I, I love that idea that the, the Wizard of Oz, I mean, the Wizard of Oz uh, could be, um, uh, Barrett's uh, uh, Prospero. <laughs> yeah, and that and that's sort of like and yeah, well, because and that's the thing. Like e England already had had a rich tradition of magical figures well before the Victorian occult revival, right? Mm -hmm. So Francis Barrett also sort of had to like figure out how he was going to fit in 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 that tradition and you know survive in that. He couldn't he couldn't do uh, what would. Be, would be some of the, like the more modern things that you that could, wouldn't even be possible in like in in 1801. Uh, I'm trying to think about like a lot of the satanic sort of forms of magic in, in oh, existence. Yeah, yeah. That would like that, that that just wouldn't fly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like he wouldn't have been able to get away with it at all. Like that would have been no. Yeah. No. Too scandalous. Yeah, and that's why that's why Aleister Crowley was like the the, the wickedest man in the world. Mm -hmm. Even that, pro but you know, I'm I'm pretty sure uh, he wasn't as wicked as as some people are today. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, so then uh, after after Barrett, the Magus went on to be sort of looked at by Eliphas Levy, I believe. Yeah. So okay. So after. After Francis Barrett had died, the plates were then sold to John Denley, and then John Denley um, uh, gave the plates to Frederick Hockley. Frederick Hockley produces a book in 1875, the second edition. Um, I'm not sure whether it's the 1875 edition or the 1801 edition, but Elifa Levy gets a hold of it. And it would have had to be the 1801 edition because he would have, I think he was. 1830? Yeah, he could have. That could have been him. I think he died in the eighteen seventies or maybe eighteen eighties. So he he was sort yeah. of mid century. So maybe so maybe Elifa, like I, I it, there's a lot of like timelines I I I have to remind myself on. So I think Elifa uh, Levy uh, he he met with Frederick Hockley. He he met with all of these 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 English sort of sort of bugaboos like. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, Bulwer Lytton, uh, you know, Twas a Dark and Stormy Night. Though he met right. he met all these people, and he when he saw the Magus, he's like, this is a, this is great. France should be doing something similar because in France at the time it was a, it was a lot of like cheap books, cheap little chap books and things mm -hmm. like that. The Magus though was like put together as a as a as a calf bound octavo. It was a it was a it was beautiful to look at. Like you could set it down on the table and people go and would would coo over it right and it was i'm sure i'm sure it had some some theatrical display too with with its uh, beautiful engravings and stuff like that for any cunning person to to display for their for their clientele um or just to, you know just have a good laugh uh, uh uh during christmas or something like that <laughs> yeah yeah but so he ins he inspired that and uh and in fact um because of uh, of that inspiration it also influenced um what was his name Mackenzie, I think it was Alexander Mackenzie. He was a uh, he was cousin to a Canadian prime minister, but he lived in. He was also a, an astrologer and 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 crystal, uh, and crystal guy with Frederick Hockley, and they started. Um, they, I don't think it was the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. I think it was another one. There was oh. like there was a lot of there was a, some precursors to the yeah, Hermetic yeah. Order of the Golden Dawn, mm -hmm. and so like 
the Magus and Eliphal Levi and Frederick Hockley, that became the crucible, which would then start the next phase of English magic, which was the OTO and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and 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 to some extent uh, even um, uh, Theosophy, which was coming uh, which was coming in so with uh, with uh, Pavlotsky and uh, Pash, uh, Beverly Randolph, yeah, uh, because they were all yeah. Yeah, they were they were all talking with each other, and they were drawing, uh, and and they were they they were they were using the new industrial sort of strength of the West to to create new and interesting things, and mm-hmm. and the Magus was sort of like even if it was uh, a negative association, like well we can't do this stuff because this is lesser, but but Eliphal Levi did not see it that way. He saw, he thought it was a it was an excellent it was an excellent textbook, and uh, he did something similar. I feel like uh, really what's coming out of this is that instead of poo-pooing Barrett, we should be thanking him. Yeah, he was uh, he was the first entrepreneur on on this. He he enabled the Western uh, publishing tradition of magic to this day. Like the, uh, everything from uh, Charmed, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, all that comes out of like it had to come out of the Industrial Revolution somehow. And so, but Francis Barrett was like. The guy who who sort of like planted that seed, and then just things sort of spring up after that. Mm-hmm. And well, funny. and then it, it it eventually even produced one of my favorite books, which I didn't get to read until after my thesis: Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell. Oh God, that is a good book. <laughs> that is a really fun book. Did you did you not did, did you not uh, I did, when I saw the 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 uh, the depiction of Jonathan Strange. I saw staring back at me the frontispiece of Francis Barrett. Huh. And it, it, the whole place is, is the tale of two magicians in England during the Napoleonic Wars. I'm like, my goodness, this is the story of, of Francis Barrett and Ebenezer Sibley, Jonathan yeah. Strange, and Mr. Norrell. Yeah, it has to be. It must be. It, yeah. There, there's got to be some sort of connection there. It's, 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 just, it's that imaginative foundation. And of course, after, after I read the book and after my thesis was done, I'm going, Holy smokes! Why was I not? Why was I not aware of this? And and <laughs> and in fact, when I'm when I watch the the BBC adaptation of that, and uh, Jonathan Strange has produced a, a book of magic, they, and they show the title page. It's the same title page as like it's the same layout as the Magus. I'm like they're 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 directly they're directly making like links uh, uh, to to Francis Barrett, even though they're not explicitly stating it. It's a fan, it's the fantasy version of it, and I thought oh. it was I thought it was amazing. That is pretty amazing. <laughs> well, hey, um, we're almost out of time, so uh, can you tell the listeners where they can find you online or where they can look for more of your work? Well, uh, so far, but uh, I'm a librarian, so I'm not really good at marketing. But I have created a um, uh, a lecture series on the foundations in the study of uh, the academic study of magic, and you can find that on Udemy right now. Um, uh, I, I don't have the link. I just, I guess, just search my name, R.A. I have the link. I will put it in the show notes. That's great, and I'm also going to make sure to uh, share this podcast with a with a lot of my. Uh, uh, a lot of my friends and family and, and students and stuff like that. And uh, oh, I hope that if you are interested in magic, you do sign up because even though it's just a, a it's just a lecture series, uh, I also have it as a as a resource hub. Since I am a librarian, I love providing really uh, accurate and uh, easy to read sort of information on various sections within the Western esoteric traditions because it's complicated. There's a lot happening over mm-hmm. several thousand years. Oh, and it's easy to miss stuff if you, yeah. if you're, especially if you're new to um, a particular area, it, it can be really tough to track down exactly what references you should be using and what you should be looking at. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's so cool. I'm, I'm just, I'm so tickled by uh, <laughs> the fact that like you've, put so much work into transforming Barrett from like somebody that we sort of you know toss into the rubbish pile into like a interesting character with not just um, you know personality and weird adventures but like somebody who is actually influential and um, and pivotal you know sort yeah, of he, he had a point he of view and he, and he mm-hmm. put his life on the line to do it so yeah yeah I mean with hydrogen balloons <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Robert, uh, Mr. R.A. Priddle. Um, I, thank you. Uh, I'm really happy that you were able to come on the podcast. And next time, 
maybe we can explore some of those um, tangents oh, I that we. To it. Uh, I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Arnamancy podcast. You can find me online at arnamancy.com, where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the Arnamancy blog. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. If you like this podcast, support it for just $1 a month through Patreon at patreon.com slash arnamancy.